Years ago, a Christian magazine ran a cartoon. The lawn marquee in front of the church was advertising the light church, the L-I-T-E church. 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services, only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. Everything you've wanted in a church and less. And this is the church to which the book of James was written. He speaks to Christians with zero-calorie, low-fat, watered-down faith. You know, it's been said in our day, the gospel has become so diluted that if it were a medicine, it wouldn't heal, and if it were a poison, it wouldn't harm. It's tragic when a church dilutes the demands of the gospel to make it more palatable to society's tastes. We call it easy believism or cheap grace. It's the idea that saving faith is nothing more than responding to an altar call or just mouthing a prayer or signing a card. Just jump through a few religious hoops and you'll be saved for all eternity. You've got your life, your fire insurance now. Well, the book of James tells us that's just not true. That true, legit saving faith leaves tracks. That real faith shows up in real ways in a person's life. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that's real is not alone. It's a faith that works. James chapter 3 begins, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. You know, the Jewish rabbis were called, or the Jewish teachers were called rabbi. The word means my great one. The Hebrews revere their teachers. Under Jewish law, the duty to help a rabbi exceeded even the duty to provide for a parent. And with such a show of respect and privilege, there were no shortage of people who wanted to be leaders. The situation carried over into the early church. People wanted to be pastors because they saw it as a cushy job. They never considered its responsibilities. That's why James here warns aspiring teachers of a stricter judgment. Teachers are incredibly influential. I have a plaque in my office that reads, A teacher touches one's life forever. But a teacher can lead well or can mislead. That's why a teacher needs to be accurate, not sloppy, appealing, not boring, genuine, not hypocritical. Mostly, a teacher needs to live what he teaches. A pastor gets no credit for teaching the Bible if he doesn't live by it. None of us should ever say, do what I say, not what I do. Teachers are held to a higher standard. And then he says in verse 2, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Again, real faith leaves tracks. For one, you can tell the contents of a person's heart by what comes out of their mouth their speech. James tells us, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder 
wherever the pilot desires. Like a boat rudder or a horse's bridle, our tongue is a a steering mechanism. If you can control what you say and how you say it, you can skillfully navigate life. But in contrast, loose lips sink ships. Speak without thinking, and you head towards shipwreck. Well, James continues, he says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Your human tongue is a slab of meat that weighs just two and a half ounces. Did you know that? And yet it is your body's strongest muscle. It can be used to inspire or it can be used to destroy. He says, see how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. A single spark from a campfire can burn a whole forest. And likewise, one idle or hurtful word can sour the attitudes of many people. A combustible tongue can destroy a church. He says, the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Boy, when Satan finds a wagging tongue, he sets it on fire to do great damage. Do you remember how Samson, he caught those 300 foxes, and he tied torches to their tails, and then he turned them loose in the fields of the Philistines and destroyed their entire crop? Well, likewise, a fiery tongue is Satan's weapon to weapon of choice to destroy a church. When the devil finds a loose tongue, he fuels it with evil to burn up God's harvest. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Go to the circus and the circus sports, it's dancing bears and it's trained seals, and it's talking parrots. Bird and beast can be tamed, but no one tames the tongue. An envious or a bitter tongue is capable of running wild. And it can be guilty of extreme contradiction. Verse 9 tells us, With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God out of the same mouth Proceed blessing and cursing. You know, I've seen it happen on Sunday morning. Folks walk into these doors, into this sanctuary. Together they praise the Lord. And then they cuss each other out in the parking lot trying to get out of the thing to get to the restaurant. We're told in verse 10, my brethren, these things ought not not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? You see, the tongue is like a spring. Its source lies below the surface. In Luke 6, verse 45, Jesus says of a person, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The tongue is the spigot of the heart. What's in your heart eventually comes out of your mouth. A heart yielded to God produces a tongue that speaks kindness. An evil heart yields a tongue on fire. He says, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Love for God and hurtful words 
out of the same mouth is as incongruous as olives on a fig tree. What spews from the fountain reflects the source. And then he says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now notice here, evidence of faith isn't just seen in good conduct. But wisdom needs to go with that good conduct. Sometimes the right thing can be done in the wrong way without wisdom, or at the wrong time, and it can undermine the good that we're trying to do. Here James associates wisdom with meekness or with restraint. See, wisdom doesn't just rush in and bowl people over with the truth. No, it wisely picks its timing and it works gently and sensitively in the life of another person. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. God's wisdom and earthly wisdom are very different. Earthly wisdom divides us and creates factions. It's egotistical and self-seeking and envious of others. See, man's wisdom always proposes a win-lose kind of arrangement. Someone ends up on the top and someone ends up on the bottom when you use man's wisdom. Whereas God's wisdom is a win-win proposition. Both parties benefit from the proposal or the solution. God's wisdom looks for ways for everyone to benefit. He says in verse 16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Earthly wisdom breeds confusion. Follow it and chaos reigns. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. In essence, there's no ulterior motives. There's no hidden agendas with wisdom from above. It's honest and straightforward. And then peaceable or peace-loving, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, man's wisdom is concerned with self-interest, while God's wisdom creates solutions that unify us and keep the peace. And has there ever been a time, more so than today, when such wisdom was needed? I can't remember it. Those of us living here below certainly need wisdom from above. In every area of modern society... We need heavenly wisdom. Well, then chapter 4 tells us, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? Notice the Greek word translated here, pleasure, is hedone, from which we get our word hedonism. That pleasure is the chief purpose of life. This is certainly today's predominant philosophy. And yet it's our pursuit of pleasure that creates conflict with other people and that ultimately makes us all unhappy. Harmonious and healthy relationships require giving and commitment and sacrifice and unselfishness and humility, things that aren't necessarily pleasurable. A hedonist invariably ends up in broken, unhappy relationships. He says in verse 2, you lust and do not have. And here is the irony of life. 
lust for more, and you end up with less. Samuel Johnson once issued the challenge, of all that have tried the selfish experiment, let one come forward and say that he succeeded. He that makes gold his idol, has it satisfied him? He that's toiled in the fields of ambition, has he been repaid? He that has ransacked every theater of sensual enjoyment, is he content? Can any answer in the affirmative? No, not one. None other than King Solomon tried the selfish experiment. You remember in Ecclesiastes, he sought after gold and ambition and sex. And yet he concluded there in chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. James nails it. Here is the result of pleasure's pursuit. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You know, we fight and kill and we covet to get the other guy's stuff rather than simply asking God for his blessing. Don't lust, just ask. God has something better just for you. Countries battle and neighbors bicker and companies try to bankrupt each other over the same resources. It's like brothers fighting over a candy bar rather than just asking their gracious dead for the extra candy bar he's got in his pocket. Verse 3 tells us, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So often when we ask, we ask wrongly with the wrong motivation. Our concern should be God's glory, not our own pleasure. Let's not ask amiss or ask selfishly. And then in verse 4, James doesn't mince words. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, being born into God's family involves a vow of allegiance to Jesus. When we become Christians, we agree to love Him and desire Him supremely. And the unbridled pursuit of pleasure is a betrayal of that vow. James calls it adultery. Our hearts belong to God, not this world. Notice verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain... The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Don't you know God's spirit is jealous of our affections? He's insulted by our flirtations or our infatuations with worldly things. And yet we live in a world full of temptation. How does God expect us to reserve our hearts for him? Well, here's how. Verse 6. He gives more grace. It's God who enables us to live for him. He fills our hearts with grace and love and goodness to say no to the things of this world. Therefore, he says, and here James quotes Proverbs 3, verse 34, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hey, assume that you can do it on your own, and God will let you try. But humble yourself. Admit your need for him. And God will fill your life with empowering grace. He says, therefore, submit to God. 
The word submit means to arrange under, to line up behind. Let's arrange our lives around God. Let's line ourselves up in accordance with his word. As Richard Baxter used to pray, Lord, what you will, where you will, when you will. What you will, where you will, when you will. Let's make that our motto. And then he says in verse 7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand against the devil in Jesus' name. Muster some resistance and the enemy will be forced to flee. In Ephesians 6, we're told to clothe ourselves with the whole armor of God. But the one part of the body that's not covered is the back. That's because there's no retreat. No running scared. We're called to resist, not to retreat. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Notice the parallel. Resist the devil and he'll flee. But draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Keep your face toward God and your back toward the devil. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Don't get caught between two opinions. Let's be all in for Jesus. You know, I once read of a guy who was, uh, got his buddies together. They had a big gang. Had a gang of bank robbers. And they paused to pray before their heist. They wanted to ask God to bless their burglary. I mean, how silly is that? I mean, who in this room wouldn't agree that you can't serve God and rob a bank at the same time? But neither can you follow Christ while living with your boyfriend. And neither can you follow Christ while cheating on your income tax. And neither can you follow Christ while stealing from your employer or lying to your parents. That's every bit as contradictory. He says in verse 9, he says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. How's that for a verse you want to put on your refrigerator? What he's saying to us is, we need to get serious about repentance. If there's sin in my life, I need to tackle it with a willingness to change. I don't just need to skirt it or ignore it. James isn't saying here that God is against laughter. But he's saying that there's something pretty phony about coming to the altar and weeping and confessing your sins. And then 30 minutes later, you'd be out in the foyer all joking with your buddies. We need to get serious about our sin. We need to lament and mourn and weep when it's appropriate. We don't just need to laugh our way through life. There are serious issues. Our relationship with God is most serious relationship we have. He says in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Promote yourself and you will rise as high as you can go. Humble yourself and God will promote you to a place that only he can lift you. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? God alone is our judge. 
And when we judge another person, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. And that is a place that none of us deserve to be. He says in verse 13, Come now, you who say, Oh, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Last spring, the New York Jets signed MVP quarterback Aaron Rodgers to an already talented team. They had hopes of winning a championship. Who could have imagined that three plays into the season, three plays into the season, Rodgers would snap his Achilles tendon and be out for the entire year? It just goes to prove that none of us know what tomorrow is going to bring. Hey, we are all day to day. I hope you know that. For us to say dogmatically, I'll do this or I'll do that is arrogance. We forget God has ultimate control, not us. Life is full of unexpected twists and turns. We should know by now that much of life is beyond our control. James says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time. And then vanishes away. Your very life. I mean everybody's life. is like a puff of warm breath on a cold winter's day. We are literally here today and gone tomorrow. How can any of us speak definitively about our future when there's no guarantee we're even going to wake up in the morning? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now realize, planning is one of life's necessities. But all of our plans should be contingent on God's sovereignty. We should say, if the Lord wills. You know, the Puritans were fond of the Latin phrase, Deo Valente, or God willing. As were the early Methodists who would sign their letters with the initials DV, or Deo Valente. Their plans were always subject to God's plans. You would think 2020's pandemic and quarantine would have taught us that our plans can change on a dime. A key to success in life is flexibility. God is in control, not us. I like the old saying, the bend in the road is not the end of the road if you're willing to make the turn. He says in verse 16, he says, but now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. It was a stormy night at sea as the battleship plowed through the fog. The captain saw a light off the port bow. It seemed to be closing in. Captain ordered the signalman on deck to flash a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. The message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the captain grew angry. How dare that guy? He sent back a message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a captain. The return message came, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a seaman third class. This infuriated the captain even further. This time he sent back, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. The message, the final message was, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a lighthouse. 
Like the proud captain, many a person has crashed on the rocks of life because we were too arrogant or perhaps too stubborn or too rigid to alter our course. This is why James says, all such boasting is evil. He says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, since we don't know what the future holds, or if we even have a future for that matter, then while we have the opportunity to do good, we certainly should do it. We need to serve the Lord while we can, for we are not promised tomorrow. He says in chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. What an invitation to the rich. Come on now, and you weep and howl. As a matter of fact, this is the same Greek word used for the shrieks that are heard in hell. James is warning the rich to weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you, he says. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eating. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. And I mean, how foolish is that? It's the last days. This world is on the way out. God's kingdom is on the horizon. The world's riches are about to burn, yet folks are investing in earthly treasures. It's foolishness. Now understand, James isn't telling us here not to save for a rainy day. Nor does the Bible teach that money is evil. No, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. James's warning here is not to the rich per se, but to those who trust in their riches, who live for their money. Earthly treasure rots and corrodes, he says. Money has zero value in eternity. He says in verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. The rich people James had in mind had actually gained their wealth dishonestly. And God had heard the cry of the victims that they had cheated. He says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. See, James sees these, these dishonest landowners as the turkey getting fattened up for Thanksgiving. He's getting, they're getting ready for slaughter. Yet that's not how they saw themselves. For you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. That's what they say. In other words, these hatchet men had cheated and murdered, and God had seemingly done nothing to stop them. And it was as if God were letting them get away with their crimes, or so they thought. It reminds me of the Wells Fargo agent who stole a silver dollar from his company every day for 30 years. Every day for 30 years. He would bring that silver dollar home and he would put it in a, a trunk up in his attic. Until one day, he deposited his last silver dollar the attic flooring could no longer hold the heavy trunk. And that night, it fell through the ceiling, crashing down on top of the man as he laid in his bed and crushing him. For years, it seemed as if this man had gotten away with his crime, but not so. For James concludes, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 
You see, today is the day of salvation. This is God's offer to man. Right now, Jesus is extending mercy to us. But the day is coming soon when the Lord is going to bring his judgment. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. A farmer can't rush the harvest. He has to wait patiently on God. And likewise, judgment comes in God's time, not ours. So do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Time is running out. We don't have a single second to waste grumbling or squabbling. There is work to do. Soon, God's offer of mercy will be over and judgment will come. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And he gives us a specific example of endurance in the face of hardship. He says, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job 42 verse 10 concludes, after the many, many things that Job had suffered, it concludes Job's trial by saying, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he'd had before. The end of Job's life proved that you never lose out waiting on God. That perseverance has its own payday. And then he says in verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. And here James repeats a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Again, the point here is that faith leaves tracks. Followers of Jesus will be people of their word. They won't have to take an oath. Their yes will be yes, and their no will be no. And then in chapter 5, verse 13, James begins to ask his readers a series of questions. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. If you're troubled on earth, then you need to put a call into headquarters. And you need to connect to heaven. You need to pray. Do you pray? I mean, really, do you pray? To bear your cares, you need to turn them into prayers. And then he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. You know, there is a disease especially common to Christians. It's called cheerful-itis. It's terminal. There's no cure for cheerful-itis. It begins in the heart and it starts to spread quickly. The mouth begins to smile and the hands begin to clap and the arms raise and the toes tap and the feet dance. And the only relief is to give praise to God. I hope you suffer from cheerful-itis. And then James asks, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now the Bible teaches us that God heals in multiple ways. 
For one, the human body comes equipped with amazing recuperative capabilities. God also uses the knowledge accrued by doctors to heal us. He can and he does perform miracles. I have received one recently. He even heals us through the church and its leaders. In fact, rather than non-essential in a time of sickness and pandemic, the church has a role to play. For this is why James says that if there's anyone who's sick, he should call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And that it's impossible to do that if the parties are not in person. And yet it's interesting that when we get the slightest little sniffle, our reaction is usually to skip church, isn't it? Oh, I'm a little sick today. I can't go to church. Whereas James says that's when you need to go to church. And you need to call for the elders. And here's the good news. The elders won't ask if you're insured. They won't charge you a copay. They won't have you fill out endless forms and make you wait for a long time in a waiting room. No, the leaders of Calvary Chapel, they love God's people and they take very seriously our responsibility to pray for the sick. And notice with our prayer, James tells the elders to anoint the person with olive oil in the name of the Lord. Now in the Bible, olive oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The elders are to pour some oil on the person who's sick, on their forehead perhaps, or near their womb. And just a little dab will do you. For the oil itself has no magical power or medicinal benefit. It's just a point of contact for our faith. Jesus yielded to the will of his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the garden of the oil press. Like oil from an olive, Jesus was crushed for us to be forgiven. And now God's healing flows through Jesus' sacrifice. Notice verse 15, James adds, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. It's the prayer of faith, not the oil itself, that prompts God to heal. The oil is just a tangible target for our faith. It's a place where we can release our faith. When we're sick and when we ask God to heal, questions come into our minds. When's he going to heal us? And how's he going to heal us? And why is he going to heal us? Well, when we anoint someone with oil, we answer those questions. When? Well, when the oil is applied, we can, we can release our faith. How? Well, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. He's going to heal us by the Holy Spirit. And why? Because the blood of body of Jesus was crushed for us like an olive. And his healing now flows through his sacrifice. Now, it's interesting. Today, Roman Catholics practice the sacrament of extreme unction. They anoint a person with oil to ready them for death. How ironic in the New Testament, the anointing of oil is a means of healing, not a precursor for dying. And in verse 15, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, not every sickness is a result of a sin. Remember, Job's sufferings were no fault of his own. 
Paul's thorn in the flesh was God's way of humbling him in light of his revelations, not the result of his sin. And yet there are times when sickness is God's punishment for a particular sin. And when that's the case, the healing comes when forgiveness takes place. He says in verse 16, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, some ailments have psychosomatic causes. Stress can be produced by guilt and shame and can have adverse effects on us physically. The lines etched in a person's face can be caused by the burdens they carry on their soul. Secret sins get buried spiritually only to find a way of pushing themselves to the surface of our lives in the form of physical maladies. Sin can be harmful to our health. Some folks suffer mysterious symptoms that they've tried treating with all kinds of drugs and other cures. But here's what few people have tried. They've never taken a ruthless inventory of their sins and confessed them to another believer. For years, they've swept their own hurts and how they've hurt others under the rug with lies and with cover-ups and with self-deception. But what if you came clean this morning? Friend, what, what if you came clean and confessed those sins? Imagine the relief. What if you actually confessed your sin and let God heal you? It reminds me of the college freshman on his first trip to the laundromat. He took his duffel bag full of dirty laundry and he just tossed it into the washing machine. Well, when it was done, he went to fold his clothes, but he was disappointed. His clothes were still dingy and dirty. Well, an older lady had sort of watched the whole thing transpire. She explained that if he really wanted his clothes to be thoroughly clean, he had to first separate them from, before he put them into the washer. And this is how we have to treat our sin. You know, some people make just vague, ambiguous, general admissions of sin, and they wonder why they still feel dirty. Serious confession gets as specific and thorough as possible. You know, in Roman Catholicism, you enter a dark booth and you confess your sins to the priest. In psychotherapy, you lie down on a couch and you confess your sins to a psychiatrist. Some folks go on television and confess their sins to Dr. Phil. But God tells us to go to church and confess your sins to one another. This is another reason Christians should meet. Church is essential. True confession is living an open, transparent life. It's about emptying out my closet of its skeletons and being honest about my weaknesses. Pride causes hypocrisy. It's humility that allows us to be real with our struggles. And God wants his church, yes, even this church, our fellowship, to be a grace-filled, judgment-free zone where honest confession can bring about genuine acceptance and healing. Well, next, James makes a very hopeful statement. It's a promise to us. He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
What an incentive to get on your knees and pray. I've heard it said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. God answers the persistent and God-glorifying and heartfelt prayer. And James gives us an example here. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah wasn't a superman. He was a mortal man. He was a human being like you and me. You remember Elijah had his highs and lows. There were moments of bravery and moments of cowardice. He stood up for heaven before the prophets of Baal. And then he ran scared before an evil woman named Jezebel. In the end, Elijah was just a regular guy trying to live a righteous life. But Elijah knew how to pray. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again. And the heaven gained rain. And the earth produced its fruit. Notice first about Elijah's praying. He prayed earnestly. He didn't just mouth some words, but he meant what he said. It's been said, Elijah didn't just say prayers, he prayed prayers. And there's a difference. And then he prayed again. He wasn't a one-time user. Prayer was a habit. Elijah prayed. And it didn't rain for 42 months. Then he prayed again, and it downpoured. The Old Testament says that when Elijah prayed again, he prayed seven times. And the answer to his prayer appeared as a tiny cloud the size of a fist in the sky. And yet that was enough to stir Elijah's faith. He turned to his servant and he said, Man, there's about to be a real frog strangler. I'm talking a gully washer is on the way. And indeed it was. For the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man had again availed much. And then we're told in verse 19, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, we certainly need to reach a lost and dying world. But another of our responsibilities is to reach out to those fallen saints who can't get up on their own, who need help, our help. You know, when an actual sheep can't stand on its own, it's said to be downcast. Its own body prohibits it from lifting itself up. And spiritual sheep are just as vulnerable In fact, you can get so depressed by this life that you need a hand, a helping hand from someone else. We are acting like our great shepherd when we reach out our hand to help. As well as lost people who don't know Jesus, we need to help those fallen saints who've strayed from him. And so again, James's point is this. Does your faith leave tracks? Hey, if you and I were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? How about you? Would there be enough evidence? Let's adopt James's attitude. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith 
by my works. Let's be doers of the word, not hearers only.